turn with me to Mark 13 this morning, Mark chapter 13. A fitting passage, as we mentioned earlier, for what our world is facing even this weekend. Because in this passage, the disciples ask Jesus a question. When will the end come? And we as Christians need to be careful about balancing between anticipation and conjecture. There's a difference there. That as we even look at the tumult of our world, the chaos, the suffering, the death, I think appropriately so, it should cause us to anticipate Christ's return. That we cry out, how long, O Lord? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. Sometimes we can fall into the realm of conjecture. This is a question that countless people have tried to answer. When will Christ come back? At every stage of human history, people speculate and predict. They look for signs and indicators of the end of all things. And you're aware of many of these. These are not new. Probably the most famous doomsday predictor was a man named Harold Camping. He had predicted approximately 12 different times when Christ would come back. In 1992, he wrote a book entitled 1994, question mark, claiming that that's the day, that that's the year that Christ would return. Later, he predicted the world would end on May 21st, 2011. And when May 21st came and went, he concluded, oh, I messed up the math. I hate it when that happens. So he moved it to October 21st of that same year. Maybe you know the name Jack Van Impey. It's a name I heard growing up. I remember seeing the ads on our Christian TV channel for Jack Van Impey Presents. In the 90s, he predicted that the rapture would take place sometime between 2011 and 2012. And these are just two examples of, of the many examples of people that try to speculate rather than anticipate. And sometimes just seeing the tumult in the world around us prompts us to conclude Jesus has to be coming back any moment. It's got to be soon. We see the horrible things coming out of Israel as Hamas commits horrible atrocities. And as we pray for Israel, oftentimes we see such unrest and we ask, when will the end come? Surely Christ is coming back. And again, as we turn to Mark chapter 13, we see the disciples asking Jesus this same question. And, and the disciples ask him this question because of a shocking statement that Jesus says about the destruction of the temple. Now, there's a lot of disagreement concerning the events Jesus is describing in Mark chapter 13. So before we jump in, I'm going to walk through that a little bit to help to make sure we're on the same page. There's different opinions about what, Mark, what Jesus describes as he talks about the destruction and the, the tribulation. Some people believe that he is describing the end times. Other people believe that he's describing the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when Rome besieged Jerusalem. And others think that Jesus is describing both, hopping back and forth a little bit between the destruction of the temple and the end times. But when we read scripture, we want to read it plainly and straightforwardly. And as we do so, 
there are indicators in this passage that just doesn't seem to fit with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus seems to describe something far worse than that. And as we read this passage this morning and continuing through the next couple of weeks, I hope that becomes clear. While I do believe that Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in verses 1 through 2, which would take place in 70 AD, I believe this prediction touches off a question by some of his disciples about the end of all things. Because what else could the destruction of the temple mean in their eyes? And so they ask, when's the end going to come? And at that point, in Jesus' answer, he points them forward to the end. And in the following verses that we'll read this morning, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, he helps them manage their expectations a little bit. In verses 5 through 13, he predicts how human history would unfold before the end. And then in starting in verse 14, he starts to describe the details surrounding the end itself. So what we're looking at this morning is, is the course of human history leading up to the end, but not the end itself, as he describes later in this passage. As he seeks to show his disciples, this is how you should approach the Christian life. Rather than conjecture, live with anticipation, live with focus. But let's read Mark chapter 13. Starting in verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, you remember that he was just in the temple talking with the religious leaders in chapter 12, as they asked him question after question, and as he taught in the temple. And now he leaves the temple. One of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here, pointing to the temple and all its glory. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he went up to the Mount of Olives over the, against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all of these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering began to say, take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am the Christ and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves. For they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. For whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that you shall speak. For it is not you that speaks, but the Holy Ghost." Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. As we see, as we just walked through a little bit ago, what, what is Mark 13 talking about in this whole passage? Is it talking about the end times? Is it talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Is it talking about a combination of both? 
Beginning with the temple destruction, Peter, James, John, Andrew come to Jesus and say, when will all of these things take place? In fact, we see this clearly in the parallel passage of Matthew 24, 3, where he he counts the exact same conversation. And it says there in verse 3 that when he sat on the Mount Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So when they ask this question about the destruction of the temple, they say, when will the end come? The temple will be destroyed? And they heard, the world is coming to an end. Now, this is typical for the human heart, isn't it? That when our world is crashing down, we assume the whole world is crashing down. We see troubling developments in our own country, and we automatically assume that the end times are upon us. Think of it. If God told us that, let's say, China was going to take over the United States, and Washington, D.C. is is bombed, what would we be thinking? It's the end times. It must be. But do you realize how many kingdoms and nations have risen and fell over the course of human history? And so the disciples ask the question, when will all of these things happen? They've had a tough time with the messianic timeline so far, haven't they? If you've been going through this passage, the book of Mark, they've struggled with the plan, the course that Jesus has set out for himself and for the nation. And so they ask, how, when will these things happen? At every step, Jesus had to remind them of his death, burial, and resurrection while they anticipated an immediate establishment of the kingdom. And we see earlier in Mark that Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey as the crowd cheers him on, exercises authority in the temple by driving out the money changers and discrediting the authority of the scribes, which I'm sure caused the disciples to hope victory is imminent. You can understand why Jesus' words about a destroyed temple were so alarming. It is a cataclysmic, apocalyptic event. And in Jesus' response to the disciples, as they ask, when will the end come? Jesus is telling them to slow down, to manage their expectations, because a lot of things need to happen before Christ returns as the conquering king. The disciples needed a clear perspective on what was ahead of them. They needed a perspective change. We all look, we all hope for Christ to return. But it's possible for us to get so focused on anticipating or waiting or conjecturing about Christ's return that we fail to be faithful in the present. Is it possible for us as Christians to get so fascinated about end times and signs and and things lining up in history and, and geopolitical movements and all of that, that we get so focused on that that we fail to look at what Christ has before us as Christians. And so Jesus gives his disciples three pieces of advice to keep them on track as they look to the coming days. As they ask, when is the end gonna come? The first thing he tells them in verses 3 through 6 is deception first is coming. So be discerning. In verse 5, Jesus gives his first piece of advice that prompts his disciples to slow down. He tells his disciples, see that no one leads you astray, because the days ahead of you are not going to be ones of victory, but of deception. Time will pass, and as it says in Mark 13, verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, I am the Christ, and they will lead many people astray. 
Enough time will pass for multiple false Christs to rise up and mislead many. Jesus says, the end is not yet. There's going to be a time of deception. He accurately describes the time following his death and resurrection as a time of deception. And this would not take long to develop. You know, we look at the end times and we think the Antichrist, right? Well, in 1 John 2, 18, John tells the church there, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And therefore we know that it is the last hour. Friends, it's been the last hour since the early church. There have been deceivers. There have been Antichrists. There have been false messiahs rising up since the beginning of the church. We live in a day of deception. And the words of Jesus have come true in great detail. False messiahs continue to rise up. We can look at examples like cult leaders like David Koresh and the Branch Davidians or Jim Jones of the People's Temple. I almost said the Pimples Temple. That was a (laughs) totally different cult, probably. The People's Temple. And they have led many people astray. These are obvious false Christs, false messiahs. Isn't it fascinating that when a cult leader rises up, they always claim Jesus as their identity and not some other leader or person or, or deity? They always claim to be the Messiah, the Christ. Not only have false Christs arisen, but different religions will present a false picture of Christ. Islam portrays Jesus as a great prophet like Muhammad. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses portray a false view of Christ. Even some evangelical preachers present a false Jesus who is more concerned about making your life comfortable than he is making you holy. All of these uphold false Christs and say, this is him. Here he is. And Jesus tells his disciples, in the days to come, deceivers will arise. And they will say, I am he. Do not be led astray. And so while the disciples were thinking, the end's about to come, Jesus says, no, a time of deception is about to come. And the age of the church, which we find ourselves in now, is an age filled with deception. And we see these warnings all throughout the New Testament, throughout the epistles. Ephesians 4, verse 14, we're called that we should be built up in the church so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It says later in chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Colossians 2.8, we're told to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Jesus' exhortation to his disciples is an exhortation to us as well. Let no one deceive you. You're going to have to navigate a time of great deception before the end ever comes. And so be careful. Rather than just simply waiting for the end of all things, what does Christ want us to do? To watch out for those who are seeking to deceive and lead you astray. Hold to the truth. Don't fall prey to those who try to deceive you by even setting dates for Christ's return. Did you know that when someone tries to set a date for Christ's return, said this is the date, you know what they're doing? They're contradicting Christ. Because Christ says, and we'll see in this very same chapter in a couple weeks, that no one knows the day or the hour. 
So don't fall prey to those who divert you from a singular allegiance to Christ. Distract you with conjecture and speculation. Deception is here, so be careful. And sadly, the skill of discernment is one that's woefully lacking in our churches today. We need discerning Christians. Not gullible Christians. Not distracted Christians. But discerning Christians. And what a comfort that Jesus tells us ahead of time about this reality. Deceivers will come. Be discerning. Be careful. Let's continue on in verses 7 through 8, where he tells us disaster is coming. So be calm. Calm? Jesus paints a very discouraging picture of the future. For his disciples and for us, what does he describe? He says, there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars, rumblings of wars. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. And the implication is that things things will be getting worse and worse, not better. We see the analogy, the beginning of sorrows, that language, that's an analogy to, to childbirth, to labor. Your English version might say these are about the beginnings of birth pains. The contractions of before giving birth gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, there are many Christians that believe that the church, through the church, history is going to get better and better and better and better and better and better, and we're just going to usher in the Lord's kingdom. Have you read the news? That's, that's not happening. Things get worse and worse. It's not hard for us to see this coming true all around us. And it's alarming, isn't it? It's unsettling. And that must mean the end is near, right? No. (laughs) No. We think, well, the Bible predicts it and now it's happening, so the end is near, right? We don't know. In fact, Jesus says the exact opposite. Wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and then what does Jesus say? These things must take place, but the end is not yet. What's our automatic conclusion? There's wars and rumors of war. The end is coming. Jesus says the exact opposite. These things will happen, and the end is not yet. They must happen. He speaks of war. The history of war is the history of humanity. Obviously, what we see with our own eyes and through the news today is really bad. But we fail to remember there have been wars and atrocities and everything that we see now since, since mankind first fell into sin. There are rumblings of new wars. Everyone is on edge. We turn on the news and we realize national security is never a guarantee. And all of these things, it should cause us to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There is anticipation, right? Come quickly. But not speculation. These signs mean that Jesus must be coming soon. We don't have the ground to say that. Jesus says that the presence of wars and rumors of wars 
are not indicators that the end is near. They are indicators that the end is not near. Now, could he come at any moment? Yes. In fact, there's nothing left that Jesus needs to do, no sign that he needs to show us before he returns for his church. And he says, you see wars and rumors of wars, that's troubling. But do not draw a straight line from wars and rumors of wars to a clear sign that the end is coming. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. He speaks of natural disaster. We look at famine, earthquakes, natural disasters, and like birth pangs that get worse and worse, the world itself will experience more and more natural disasters. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, that the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We look at earthquakes, and we look at famines, and we think, the end is near. This is alarming. And Jesus says, no, these are but the beginning of birth pains. It's normal for us to look at all of these disasters and these wars and think the end is coming. But you have to remember, what have Christians been doing at every generation since the beginning of Christianity? They've been looking at the troubling wars and the disasters and thinking, the end is coming. And here's a date that it's going to happen. And here's the exact year that he's going to return. Why shouldn't we look at war and natural disaster as signs of the end? Well, take a peek down at verse 32 of Mark chapter 13. This is a passage we'll be discussing in a couple of weeks. And at this point in the chapter, Jesus does directly answer the disciples' question about when will these things take place. Verse 32, concerning that day or that hour... No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Say, Aaron, what does it mean that the Son doesn't know the time when the end comes? I've got a couple weeks to study that, so you have to come back. (laughs) In verse 34, he says again, you do not know when that time will come. Look in verse 35. The master could come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. We just sang that, didn't we? Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, and maybe soon. There's anticipation here. You don't know. But there's no speculation. Why is there no speculation? Because you can't know. There's no obvious signs that need to take place before the next thing in God's eschatological timeline. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. 
The presence of wars and rumors of wars are simply indicators that things are moving forward as expected. But they are not signs that the end is near. Jesus perfectly describes the course of human history. And he tells his disciples, this is what you can expect. So how should we respond to the wars and rumors of wars and the, and the earthquakes and the disasters? In the midst of all this chaos, Jesus gives them a very simple command. Do not be alarmed. Oh, don't we need that? Everything is a reason for alarm, isn't it? Can we struggle in being alarmist Christians? Every day, the news gives us a new reason to be alarmed. You just got over the alarm from yesterday, and then today, here's a new reason. Panic. To wonder just how much more this world can take. Where are the calm Christians? Where are the Christians who are resting in God's sovereign control? The Christians who say all this disaster, all this chaos is heartbreaking and horrible as it is. This disaster that causes me to cry out, Lord, come soon. All this disaster was predicted by my Savior. There is no need to be alarmed. We can grieve, we can sorrow, we can pray, we can help. No need for alarm, because the end is not yet. There is so much comfort in Jesus' words, this must take place. Because this chaos is not outside of God's control. The kings of the earth rally themselves together, and he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. It's passages like this that help us see the chaos as proof of his control. Because before it ever happened, he told his disciples, disaster is coming, so do not be alarmed. There's a peace and a calmness that Christ's followers can have, knowing that all this disaster, all these wars, all this chaos is part of God's unfolding plan. We need calm Christians. Christians who are trusting. Christians who are praying. Not Christians who are panicking. Even as we look at the troubling things in Israel, what should our heart's response be to that? Panic? Alarm? No. Prayer? Trust? Crying out to the Lord in the midst of sorrow. We need calm Christians. And finally, Jesus points to one more thing that the disciples needed to anticipate in the days to come. He told them persecution is coming. So be alert. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives his disciples one more exhortation. Be on your guard. The disciples had to realize that they had a long road ahead of them. God's people were about to enter a time of intense persecution, starting with the disciples and continuing throughout the church age. And rather than getting ready for the kingdom, the disciples needed to get ready for persecution. 
Perhaps in the disciples' mind, they thought that they had endured to the end with Christ already. We've endured. Imagine what they thought when they heard Jesus' words in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wait a minute, haven't we done that already? Oh no, you've got a long road ahead. There's more? Yes, there's more. You hate the feeling when you're running a race and you think the finish line is just around a corner? You turn that corner and realize you've got 15 miles left to go? (laughs) The disciples are looking for the end. And Jesus tells them, look for persecution. Be alert. And what a loving thing for Christ to tell them. To not allow them to go into the future with a wrong sense of reality, with the wrong expectations. As we consider this warning, he tells us about the scope. He tells the disciples, you're going to be persecuted by the Jews. You see this, you will be delivered over to councils. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. He tells the disciples, you'll be beaten by your own people. You'll be persecuted by the Gentiles. We see this where he tells his disciples, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. This is what you can expect. He tells them the purpose. Why? You stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. This will happen to you because you have a mission from me to bear witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. He's about to send his disciples out. And so with that, he gives them a guarantee. Look in verse 10. What must happen before the end comes? The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He tells his disciples... The end can't come until the message of the gospel spreads around the globe. These 12 Jewish men had just been told that the message of Jesus Christ that they held was going to spread everywhere. That's going to take some time. Even today, we're a partial fulfillment of that. The gospel has reached us. Why such a delay in Christ's return? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. He's patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as the gospel is spread, the one bearing the gospel news will be persecuted. And again, Jesus perfectly describes the course of human history. And with a guarantee, he gives them a comfort. Look in verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, don't be anxious about what you are to say. Say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. When you face persecution, he says, when you're brought to trial, don't be anxious. Do not fret about what you will say, because the Holy Spirit will come with, be with you in that moment, and he will give you the words. You can read example and ex- after example of this, throughout church history. You can pick up a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs and see story after story of Christians brutally persecuted and while facing torture and death, able to proclaim the words of God in confidence, peace, and hope. And we look at that and we think, there's no way I could do that. How do they have the strength and such peace to speak in those moments? This passage tells us why. 
because the Holy Spirit would be given in those moments to give them peace and clarity in the words to say. Jesus tells his disciples, I will be with you in the face of persecution. And then finally, he gives them the assurance. Verses 12 through 13 describe even the fracturing of families. Family members will turn on each other because of the gospel. A father will surrender his own child over to death. Children will do the same for their parents. Verse 13, here's a happy thought. Everyone will hate you because of me. The gospel that you carry will cause you to be hated, and I will be the reason for that, Jesus says. This is what you can expect. This is your future. But here's the assurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is not saying that our salvation depends on our endurance. This is saying that those who have genuine faith will endure to the end. The idea that in, in Scripture, salvation is described in different senses. Sometimes it's talking about immediate salvation. When we, when we call on Christ for salvation, we are saved. But Scripture also talks about a final salvation. That we, that's when our faith becomes sight. When we are delivered. When we are saved from this world. And he's talking about your final salvation here. The end of the race. In other words, what's he saying? The one who runs the race will reach the finish line. Those who do not genuinely believe Christ, what will they do? They will not endure. They will not tolerate such persecution and hatred. They will fall away. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. With God's grace comes the grace for endurance. And he tells his disciples, keep running because there's a finish line and you will be saved. Lest the disciples think that their battle was coming to an end, Jesus tells them it's only the beginning. Be on your guard. Be alert. The truth that the end is not yet should not lull us into complacency, but rather the mission and the persecution should keep us alert and ready. The realization that we need endurance for the journey ahead. Be alert. We need alert Christians. Our greatest need is not for Christians who are looking for the next sign, the next indicator about when Christ will return. We need Christians who are alert, ready, on guard, prepared to be a witness to a world that hates Jesus. Prepared to endure until Christ calls them home. That's what we need. In the verses to follow, Jesus will start to detail what the end will look like. But his first step was to tell his disciples, you're not there. You'll see the destruction of the temple soon. And you'll think, this is it. It's over. But you have a long way to go. You'll see false Christs arise, seeking to deceive. So be discerning. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of earthquakes and famines. So stay calm. You'll be persecuted and hated for my sake, so be 
alert. We need discerning, calm, and alert Christians. Does that characterize us? Are you discerning? Do you know the true Christ? Are you being led astray by false Christs? Are you calm? As hard as it is in the world in which we live. Are you trusting God? Are you alert? Are you on guard? Are you ready to suffer for Christ if necessary? Or are we gullible Christians? Are we, like it says in in Ephesians 4, swept to and fro, back and forth, by every wind of doctrine? Are we alarmist Christians? Where every new tragedy is the alarm bells. And we start to speculate. And we start to connect as many dots as we can to come up with a theory to prove that Christ is coming back someday. That's not going to help us. We need calm. We need trust. We need confidence. Are we lethargic Christians? Rather than being alert for the possibility of persecution, are we sitting still? Are we lulled into complacency? Christ calls us to be discerning, calm, and alert. When will the end come? The only thing I can tell you is it will come on a day that you do not expect. So in the meantime, be discerning, stay calm, and stay alert. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in control over history. We thank you that it is not up to us to chart out the course of the future. You have given us a task. And Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you give us the grace to discern truth from error, to stay calm in the midst of tragedy, and to stay on guard in the face of persecution, so that we may be faithful witnesses for you in the days ahead.